You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We are happy to be here this morning, and I am Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English from Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs. Uh, Not on campus yet, unlike our second host, Danny Anderson, also Assistant Professor of English at beautiful Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs. Danny, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing pretty well, Nathan. Sounds like a winner. And in the great white north, I'm going to guess quite a bit cooler than North Georgia. Probably not. It was, have... it was 80 degrees yesterday. Well, son of a gun, you shot my intro. Uh, <laughs> Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, considering it was 80 degrees and it was the last day of September in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. I... That, that, that displeases me. Yeah, th- this is not our episode on global climate change, so I'm going to leave that sitting where it is. Uh, we do have some listener feedback, though, to talk about. Uh, first of all, Michael, won't you hit us with one of the emails we received? All right, we got a very nice email from uh, our, our listener, Josh Nisley, which he helpfully included a pronunciation guide, because I'm sure I would have pronounced that Nisley. Um, he, I think he, he wrote us earlier, and I can't remember if we read it on the air or not, but he, he's the surfing... We did, you mispronounced his name. That's right, it's the surfing Amishman, because he's the beachy, the beachy Mennonites. And we, uh, we had a good laugh about that. Anyway, he says, thanks for affirming my pretentiousness in your most recent episode, which I think is the authenticity episode. I am finding at the age of 25 that I genuinely enjoy much of what I pretentiously enjoyed in high school, classical music, literature, philosophy, etc. Because of your episode, I can now celebrate my current pretensions, the ones that prompt me to read Kierkegaard, without feeling all the self-loathing when he glorifies that individual. I am free. I am free. Your discussion of the subject, especially Michael's piece on existence preceding essence, reminded me of, oh man, uh, you know, German words are difficult for me, Glossenheit, which in Anabaptist thought has to do with the idea of yieldedness to God in the local community of disciplines. Closely related to Glossenheit is the idea that obedience proceeds and results in belief, or, to borrow your terminology, faking it results in authenticity. In digging around a bit online, I was surprised to find Heidegger using the same term, Glossenheit. I owe this knowledge to Wikipedia, not my vast knowledge of Heidegger. I'm wondering (laughs) if, A, you could talk more about Heidegger's notion of Glossenheit, and B, whether or not the Anabaptist usage is related to Heidegger's usage in any way other than linguistics. Am I connecting dots or grasping at straws? I'm more or less pitching the question at Nathan, since he's the quasi-Anabaptist with Heidegger cred. If faking it as spiritual (laughs) discipline isn't a book title already, it should be. Nathan, do you know what Heidegger has to say about Galassenheit? Oh, man, no, but I'm having being in time flashbacks where I was living in the footnotes so that I could see which German terms he was using for which English hyphenated strings. <laughs> uh, so, no, I, offhand, I don't have an answer to the Glossenheit question. Neither do I. <laughs> we, we've had this email for several weeks. We have very little excuse for not looking that up. Except, you know, like, full-time teaching loads and stuff. Sorry, Josh. I guess I, I, we didn't even bother faking it. Yeah. <laughs> I do How think, authentic of us. I do think Nathan's next book should be called Faking It as a Spiritual Discipline. That should be the subtitle. 
Oh no, I'm thinking the main title. No, 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 no. The, the main title I, should got... be something like Galassen Heils Geschichte. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and see, I, I was thinking, you know, that could be the main title, and then the subtitle could be uh, "Smiling and Nodding in Ecclesial Moments." Well, we also got an email from Steve Smith, who says, Continuing to listen to and enjoy the podcast, keep up the good work. I just finished listening to the Jewish Novels episode, which got me thinking. Any chance you'll do an episode on Latin American authors or novels at some point? Borges, anyone. Also, Ooh. when can we expect the Echo episode? Echo meaning Umberto Echo, not like Echo the Greek character or Echo the phenomenon, the scientific phenomenon. I know it must be on a list somewhere. It's not on my list. I've never read Echo. Oh man, I I tried to read Name of the Rose and I I made it about halfway through. Uh, Danny, have you and, read Echo? I have not. No. Yeah, I mean I haven't read any of his other books, so I I'm I'm sorry. The Umberto Echo episode might be something to look for on uh, Entitled Opinions. It seems like something <laughs> Grubbs would read, isn't it? Isn't Echo like a very popular among medievalists? Oh, medievalists love him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've read Borges. I've read. I teach contemporary non-Western. Uh, writers here at Crown, and so I, I have read some Latin American authors. I am so far from an expert on that subject, though, that I, I would feel a little weird talking about it. We could, I could, I could conceivably do a Borges episode. Do either of you know Borges well enough to talk about him for an hour? I've uh, read a little bit of him, um, and I, and I've, I found it really interesting. I actually just the other day in class had a really great conversation. We read the um, Aleph in class and it was uh really uh interesting links to faith and uh it was really some cool uh talk in class about that so yeah and my answer is I... no but if you gave me enough lead time i might be able to read a book or two no the nice thing about borges is his stories are remarkably short yes oh well, heck why not then i mean they're like they're <laughs> like three pages long which is not to say they're easy Okay. But yeah, so maybe we will do a Borges episode. I, I imagine that would be more likely than a full-scale Latin American authors uh, episode. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I know, I, I've read a story or two by ten or fifteen people, but n nothing I would feel comfortable talking about. I got you. I got you. That's fair enough. Yeah, actually, I mean, I'd, I'd be more comfortable with contemporary Japanese novel, but. I have a hunch I'm idiosyncratic among our crew in that respect. I've read I've read Silence just like you have, uh, and I, I don't I don't go too far beyond that. I mean I've I've read some fiction, but that's the only um, that's the only novel I've read. We could do a full Silence episode, or we could do Silence and uh, Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, which, to my mm. mind, are mostly the same book. <laughs> Very good. Uh, over on Facebook, we also got some feedback. Uh, first of all, Michael Barry has been giving us links like a fiend. Thank you, Michael. I have been reading most of them, although I haven't you know, taken the time yet to comment on many, but it looks like Michael has. Uh, we've also been getting links from Isabel Eyre, who I, I have titled our official file checker because she's the one who keeps giving us word that certain files are broken links and such. Carter Stepper's been pr posting links. All, sort of, all sorts of listeners uh, have been hitting us on the uh, Facebook page. Uh, Mark Anthony Tara Thomas, most recently, and this one amuses me, so I'm going to give it a little bit of time here, uh, about a week ago said that he recently discovered the podcast, and in parentheses he, write, he writes, I feel a bit like Columbus who, quote, discovered, close <laughs> quote, something others already knew about, uh, and have been rapidly listening to every episode I can get my hands on. 
As a high school history teacher who secretly wishes he could have been a medievalist scholar, I found your episodes on the Middle Ages and Crusades, among others, to be both entertaining and informative. And then here's the amusing part. He, uh, he says, I must protest, however. Yesterday, while scrolling through the episodes, I noticed one entitled Neil Postman Was Right. Uh, you can imagine my enjoyment at seeing one of my favorite authors as the subject of your episode. You are truly cruel men. I must beg of you to do a proper episode on Postman. That would make me smile. So a little bit of backstory uh, for you new listeners. There was a week when, because of computer problems, we just could not record. So I recorded a brief audio file. And instead of labeling it something bland like technical difficulties or no episode this week, I wrote Neil Postman was right as a tip of the hat to Technopoly and our dependence on technology. Uh, I, I, think that was, uh, I think that was actually me. Oh, was it really? Yeah. So quit taking credit for my work, Nathan. <laughs> oh, man. I... <laughs> now, Michael, I know you have read some Neil Postman. I mean, that that's an episode I would like to do sometime. I, I'd be inclined to do an episode on one of his books rather than on the whole corpus. But Or do him versus someone a little more optimistic about technology. I, I mean, you know, God forbid I say it, but... <laughs> uh, but but I, I think I think a solid hour of talking about Neil Postman might put me so deep into apocalypticism that I uh, <laughs> I wouldn't right, be able to climb right. out. But yeah, I mean, do him versus like Marshall McLuhan, who says a lot of the same things, but a little more sanguinely. Right, or Neil Postman versus Doug Rushkoff, or Neil Postman versus um, Richard Lanham. Yeah, I mean, any of those would be work workable, I think. But I I, I, I like and respect Postman, and, and would you know that'd be a good episode. Danny, do you mm-hmm. know Postman at all? You know, I read Amusing Ourselves to Death uh, years ago, and uh, that's all I know, basically. So We could do that book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that is what we're going to do as far as listener feedback. Listeners, keep writing in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, today, though, we're going to do one of our single-text episodes that I so like to moderate, uh, and we're going to do a platonic dialogue because Plato is fun. Uh, we are doing Plato's Dialogue, the Mano, which we will refer to alternately as Mano and Mino. Uh, none of us is an ancient Athenian, so if there are any ancient Athenians listening, feel free to write in. Do you know, and do you know what they called ancient Athens back then? What they call it, Michael? Athens. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mano is a dialogue, uh, predictably enough, between Socrates and a man named Mano. Uh, There are also characters named Antaeus, and then one identified simply as a slave boy. Uh, And we're going to introduce those characters as they arise. Uh, But one of the things that I'm interested in is not necessarily rehearsing the dialogue so that we can become a sort of audio spark notes for the lazy undergrad. Instead, I'm more interested in digging into some of the philosophical questions that arise in the course of the dialogue and sort of spinning out some of the ways that Plato might answer them, but also the way that people many, many centuries after Plato and a crucifixion and resurrection after Plato might have to say about them. So in that spirit, uh, we're going to fire away here with some historical background. But Michael, rather than doing a biographical intro to Socrates or Plato, uh, I'm going to ask you to do a bit of biography on a concept, namely that of arete. Now, this is a Greek word, since we're dealing with the Greek dialogue, and it generally gets translated in modern English translations as either excellence or, more commonly, virtue. And in 
Homeric Greek, it has a fairly limited range of connotations. But by the time we get to Plato, it broadens out a little bit. Uh, take us through that history of change briefly and feel free to feature Homer or any other text you have in mind. I will probably talk mostly about Homer and then bring Plato in a little, and then I will pitch it over for you, to you for Alistair McIntyre. <laughs> since I, uh, since I, I know you're dying to get there. <laughs> um, as, you, as you say, arete is one of those words that confounds translators because it, it, it is about equal parts excellence or virtue, and those two words, excellence and virtue, don't really mean the same thing in English at all. Um, basically, especially in Homeric times, arete is a concept that refers to having the qualities to do the social role that you have been contracted by society to do. And so in, in Homer, um, and I, I believe McIntyre points this out, in Homer that is mostly going to be um, product of the warrior class, right? So so the, the warriors are going to have certain excellences that allow them to be good warriors. Uh, they're going to be brave, they're going to be strong, things that we in 21st century America probably don't even think of as virtues at all in that sense, because strength isn't, I mean, you know, virtue for us is something you have to work on and earn, and strength is something you're, you can you can hone, but that you're more or less born with, right? So so it, it is the qualities that allow you to accomplish a particular goal, and that, that expands a bit when you get to Plato. I believe in the Phaedrus he uses the word arete, and, and he says that it's it's a type of harmony, and and there you you are kind of moving more into what we think of as virtue this this again a quality that allows you to accomplish a goal but something a little broader than it is for homer where it really is bound up in in your social role so by the time you get to plato and aristotle arete begins to help you not so much be a good warrior as be a good human being and and so in in that sense um Man, I can't remember if McIntyre says this or not, but uh, <laughs> but in that sense, it's actually something akin to, uh, if you've ever read Confucius, Confucius is very interested in the activities of the gentleman. Um, and, and, and and so, arete would be the qualities that, that allow you to be a gentleman, a, a citizen of the world, a, a philosopher, in, 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 in Plato's sense. Do I have that completely wrong, Nathan? No, you've got it basically right. I mean, just a, a middle term that I would add is, uh, and I get this from Alistair McIntyre, you know, when you get to the Greek tragedies, uh, the word arete is still definitely connected to a social station in life. In other words, arete is something different for a ship captain than it is for a general. It's different for a king than it is for a farmer. Uh, but one of the things in Homer that is unambiguous uh, is that arete has a very specific content. One of the things that creates the tension in, for instance, a Sophoclean tragedy, uh, and that's the example that uh, McIntyre goes to, uh, uh, the uh, Sophoclean tragedy Philoctetes, uh, is that you actually have a conflict between Philoctetes and Odysseus over what constitutes excellence for a king uh, when a certain crisis moment arises. Uh, so it's not that they disagree that there is such a thing as a good life for a king, but it derives its tragic tension from the fact that they can't settle that dispute uh, in a way that, you know, leaves both of them satisfied or alive for that matter. 
And, and actually, one one more thing about um, Arete and, and Plato, which is that Mino, you know, early on in this dialogue, Socrates says, "Well, Mino, Mino, ask him, uh, ask him, can virtue is virtue excellence Arete something that can be taught?" And, and Socrates says, "Well, I we can't discuss that till we know what it means." And Mino gives this preliminary definition first. If you want the virtue of a man, it's easy to say that a man's virtue consists of being able to manage public affairs, and in so doing, to benefit his friends and harm his enemies, and to be careful that no harm comes to himself. That is very much bound up in the old Homeric concept of arete. Right, right. So, Modified so, for Athens, right? right? Because I mean, it's these these are the virtues or the excellences of a democratic citizen rather than a king specifically so so one of the one of the moves you see here in the Mano is a move from that that old style of virtue into something more cosmopolitan something that's less bound up in being a ruler of a city and more bound up in being a decent human being mhm right right and honestly and and this is one of those rabbit trails that i promised our listeners at the head, head of the episode uh i often think well, first of all, I, I, I often think that careful reading of Plato could clear up a lot of philosophical disputes that we have, but I, I'm an old fart that way. Uh, but I do think that especially when we come to questions of what university education is for, uh, that question that you know Socrates asks, what is arete, is one that I think we don't answer carefully enough uh, because it seems like every account of what what the college is for, what the university is for, what the education is for, always a, assumes a certain picture of what human arete is, uh, but without actually taking on that question that seems to me prior to the form and the content of public education, university education, so on and so forth, all the way up, frankly, to Ph.D. education, uh, we end up with some, I think, fairly muddle-headed conversations. I mean... Danny, does that, does that strike you as you know something that would be helpful to at least get on the table in those kind of conversations? <clears throat> oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that you talk about muddle-headed conversations. I mean, I think that we get too closely bound up in our own kind of tiny fractional areas of, of study, uh, and, and it sort of becomes this isolation from uh, kind of a larger conversation. And so, yeah, I absolutely think that uh, our our sort of technocratically driven um, ideas of education mm -hmm. are bound up in a lack of asking these kinds of questions. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. And I mean, even, and you know, Michael, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this cause I so often am wrong. Uh, but I, I think that even when you're dealing with fairly specialized things like PhDs in English, the whole dispute about whether PhD programs overemphasize or underemphasize teaching or scholarship or publication or this or that, uh, they all seem to point back to that prior question of what is a rate for the 21st century university professor? I mean, does that strike you as a question that gets neglected or do we actually talk about it and I'm just missing the joke? Well, I think uh, maybe not for the university professor. I think we certainly in the humanities have these conversations about about what college is for that involves more than the technocracy, uh -huh. right? I mean, it has to do with uh, it has to do with becoming a citizen of the world. I mean, that's all. That's the only thing that's been on my Facebook feed for about three weeks. <laughs> is being a citizen of the world? Kind of, right? I mean, that 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 
you know, a humanities education does X, Y, and Z, these non-quantifiable uh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. expansion things other than, you know, authorizes you to get a job as a bank teller or whatever else you, is you need a, a, <laughs> a bachelor's for. I always That's always my example because my sister, who dropped out of college for a while, applied for a job as a bank teller, and I told her she couldn't have it because she didn't have a BA. And, uh, you know, that, that to me is wow. everything that's wrong with the, uh, with the American educational system right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, we might come back to that later, but I want to get back to the platonic text. Danny, the, the, the controlling question of the dialogue, and there's usually a big question in every platonic dialogue that you're digging into, uh, which in this one hits the reader right out of the gates, is whether arete is something that human beings learn or whether it's something that's inherent in some natures but not in others. Um, why might this question have been important in 4th century Athens when Plato was writing? And do you think it translates well into more recent philosophical concerns? Sure. Um, and I'm going to stay out the gate, Nathan. I, I know that you know more about this than I do. So whatever I leave out, I am not insulted if you, you fill in. And in fact, <laughs> I, I invite it. So, um, But it seems to me that the context that I can identify really from the, the, the dialogue itself uh, has to do uh, is some sort of reaction to the sophists. And, and, and so there's these ideas of, of charging people for, for, to teach them things um, that they keep talking about, that Socrates keeps talking about in this. And, and so um, the idea of then of whether something is, uh, it can be taught or whether it's innate uh, is kind of really the, the central dilemma, the central like tension, if you will, in this, in this dialogue. And I think that um, it's related to Mino's desire to sort of categorize virtue according to various classes in the way that you and Michael just were talking about this sort of older um, idea of arete and, um, and Socrates insistence on sort of calling that into question and breaking that down. Um, and by uh, uh, asking if, isn't there one single category that um, someone can sort of uh, 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 aspire to? Um, and I feel like in this way, there is a, a very sort of democratic uh, flavor to this dialogue uh, because it, it's sort of fighting against the kind of uh, aristocratic, say, notion of, uh, of a person's place in, in their, or their social role in society. Sure, sure. Uh, and so and it's also there's a, uh, a then a link to the development of public education, right? Uh, because uh, this isn't something that is uh, available only to rich people who can pay the sophists money to teach them things and this sort of thing. So um, and so today, uh, I think it's absolutely uh, relevant. And we just sort of we're hitting on it a bit, I think. Um, but one thing I'm sort of I, I'm probably I may be off base here, but it seems to me there's some uh, a little Chomsky going on here with the sort of idea of universal grammar <laughs> um, and, and the idea that oh, interesting. are sort of hardwired for uh, uh, to, to know grammar even before they know the rules. Right. Our brains are just sort of uh, wired that way. So I think that in our own sort of more modern ways, we've been dealing with this idea of what people are born with. Right. Altogether. But. Um, I don't know Chomsky all that well, but that that concept just sort of comes to my to my mind as we're talking about this, and um, and it does I think give us some kind of uh, this this dialogue for me gives me at least some sort of philosophical maybe ammunition I don't know against uh, 
people who insist on measuring everything. Like education has to be something that is quantifiable. Like there are at these sets of X, Y, and Z things that someone must know in order to be passed on to the next thing. And we have to in, uh, provide them with this information and we have to then measure uh, their ability to reproduce this information. And the, the moment, and we'll talk about it later, I think, where Socrates is having this uh, dialogue with a, this Socratic dialogue with a, uh, a slave boy who's been completely uneducated and demonstrates that he is born with some sort of uh, uh, knowledge of geometry in this case, uh, that that is sort of a really interesting uh, like vision of what education might be uh, in, in, a, uh, in a non-utilitarian context. That is something that's about someone bringing out something within them and, and, and nurturing that and helping it grow. So absolutely, I think that this, uh, this dialogue really speaks to um, a rather idealistic um, form of uh, human growth and development sort of education. Mm -hmm. Michael, would you add anything to that? I, I am I am parked here on on, I, and I think Danny's right. There is a sort of explosion of social roles in this dialogue, and I, I'm parked on on how weird that is for Plato, who in uh, in the Republic defines justice as everybody doing the social role they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And for that matter, the the democracy of this dialogue, as Danny points out, is very also very much in tension with the Republic where he condemns democracy. Right, right. But then also, I mean, the way I read it, and we'll get to this later, I think the middle of the dialogue is in tension with the end of the dialogue. <laughs> Plato, Plato's not a simple guy. No, no, I mean, it, it's no coincidence that Jack Derrida started his career as a Plato scholar. Jack, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> Jack Derrida. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, that's what I call him. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, again, you know, it's a different, uh, it's a different set of vocabularies, but I, I also think, Danny, you're absolutely right that, that the contemporary disputes in, especially educational circles between nature and nurture have to be at least somewhat related to this, right? You know, I mean, uh, and, you know, of course, my wife, who is a public school teacher, uh, tells me about this all the time, that, you know, the working assumption of legislation is that all kids basically have the same rough native ability and that, you know, if they fail to do algebra by the time they're eighth graders, that's somehow the teacher's fault. Mm. <laughs> They've read too much Hobbes, huh? <laughs> yeah, apparently so. I <laughs> but I, I don't want to get too far into that right now because, again, we've got other bits of the dialogue to talk about. Yeah, but one thing, like, I, I know, Nathan, that you do teach Plato to freshmen even. Um, I I, I, yes, I do. In, in your sort of honors classes. I mean, how do they – I mean, do you uh, – it's, it, it would, it's in, I was reading this. I think this is sort of what I would like to talk about in class uh, – on a some level, maybe not specifically one of these dialogues, but I mean, how do they react to these sorts of ideas? Uh, honestly, at first they find it very, very alien. Yeah, uh, no kidding. You know, I, all of the, you know, pederasty and such certainly, <laughs> uh, you know, turns their stomachs a bit. However, uh, it's one of those things that, I mean, I, I take my cue here from Jack Lewis, 
uh, better known as C.S. Lewis, but I'm calling people Jack this morning. Um, in his in his preface to Athanasius, which usually gets printed separately as an essay called "On Reading Old Books," uh, what he asserts, and and sometimes people get this wrong, is that with a good tutor alongside them, and that's the part that I always try to emphasize, uh, most relatively bright. 18-year-olds can read the dialogues of Plato and get some enjoyment out of them. And so, you know, I, I try to be that reasonably competent tutor for them and sort of guide them through that. And really, I mean, it's not just, you know, Emmanuel Honor students who can do it, as I as I so enjoy telling people. Uh, there are at least five young men who are on the University of Georgia football team who read about and wrote papers about Plato's Republic for me. So, I mean, you know, uh, this is not something that is only for the bookish sorts. Uh, it's also for defensive linemen. Yeah, and I do I do the Phaedrus in my regular level uh, freshman comp class. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm sure it leaves many of them in the dust, but every, every semester I have a, a percentage of them who come up to me and, and tell me how much they enjoy it. In fact, I was going to pull it off my syllabus this year because I was – Starting to think it was too hard, and uh, one of my one of my students who, who became an English major after taking the class came. <laughs> I told him I was taking it off, and he he told me I couldn't do that; that it was too important. So you know, mm. oh, good. When, good. when you get a petition yeah. like that from a student, you you have to you have to listen to it. Oh sure, and of course you know the the joke around Emmanuel is that you know I find a way to work Plato into every class I teach, which is mostly true. Uh, and yeah, I mean. Well, one of the things about it is that, you know, along with, I would say, Friedrich Nietzsche and possibly, although this is only a possibly, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, uh, Plato remains one of the most entertaining philosophers to read. So, I mean, it's one of those things where you really can dig into it with students in a way that, for instance, I would be terrified to dig into with an Aristotle book or a, you know, one of Immanuel Kant's critiques. Uh, you know, Plato is is eminently accessible compared to other philosophers. At the very least, they're left with a series of of images that that will stick with them. They're, yeah, they're mm-hmm. you know we go over the allegory of the cave, even though it's not in the Phaedrus. They get the um, the uh, horseman, the what is it called, the uh, the myth of the charioteer. Yeah, mm-hmm. they get Thuth and Thamus. Which always mm-hmm. sounds like you're saying Zeus with a bad lisp. So yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danny, I, I, you're not getting away from this. No, I. <laughs> uh, no, actually, we're to Michael now, aren't we? See, so you guys threw me off. Uh, um, Michael, not far into the dialogue. We're still in the beginning parts. Uh, Socrates distinguishes between eristic or antagonistic philosophy, depending on what translation you're using. Uh, which he claims not to practice, and dialectical philosophy, which he will own up to practicing. Uh, what's the difference between these two modes? And again, uh, is this a distinction that still holds uh, in our postmodern moment, or is it something that we need to dismiss as hopelessly naive a distinction? In my mind, this is the same distinction he makes in the Gorgias between rhetoric and dialectic, right? Rhetoric is where you come in and argue your case and nobody listens to you. It's the sort of writing that turns up at the end of the Phaedrus in that in that myth of uh, Thuth and Thamus where you, where you get writing as a problem because it can't answer your questions. 
versus dialectic where you you kind of ask questions and go back and forth and maybe arrive at an answer and maybe don't but at least you have considered these things from multiple sides and so this is this is why uh socrates prefers dialectic to uh to aristic philosophy and to uh and to rhetoric whether it's still a valid distinction to make i really don't know because we when we go over this in my freshman comp class and i believe Kreider also talks about this distinction what i can't figure out is how to do it in non-dialogue form i mean plato mm-hmm. writes dialogues mm-hmm. and not treatises because treatises lend themselves to rhetoric and to aristic philosophy and dialogues of course i suppose you could have a rhetorical dialogue but for the most part a dialogue is going to be dialectic so so in- oh sure you can have an aristic dialogue absolutely i mean i I don't know if you get any of these on Facebook. Every, every once in a while I'll get, usually from the right wing, this tends to be their genre, a dialogue between Obama and a U.S. Marine, <laughs> which, you, I mean, you can tell is utterly fictionalized, uh, but it's, you know, for the sake of smearing some public policy. Which, you know, you know to be fair, I'm not sure if all of Plato's dialogues aren't, uh, if some of them aren't uh, aristic in that sense. <laughs> Oh sure, sure. sure. I mean, no, we, we I... talked about this in the Plato's Aesthetics episode that that Socrates' interlocutors tend to be uh, tend to be a little too quick to give up their ideas. Yeah. Well, well I... yes, yes. I don't see any other way around it. Yes, I, that, that's it exactly. <laughs> of course, Socrates. <laughs> but um, how to make? Okay, so we understand that a dialogue can be either aristic or dialectic. What I what I don't understand so much is how a uh, straightforward essay can be dialectic. Danny, do you have an answer to that? Because I've got a theory, but... Well, I mean, the way we teach, or the, I mean, the way I teach freshman comp even, is I, I try to uh, foreground the notion that when you're writing a research paper, it isn't just you sh- shouting out from the wilderness. It is you in conversation with other scholars. And so this is the the role of quotation and paraphrase and research and this sort of thing. And so uh, that's the way I can uh, reconcile the two myself is that you are ethically presenting someone else's position in a, a nice, d- d- dispassionate summary paragraph um, and then responding in, in kind and, and, and taking them point by point in, in some sort of, I mean, this is basically any academic article you read, I think has a dialectical component to it. Uh, we, we don't call it dialectical. We call it rhetoric. But, um, and, and so I don't know that, I mean, this is people that study rhetoric far more than I have would probably have a better answer to this, but I don't know that our comment, our contemporary idea of rhetoric is that different than the, the, the ethos behind dialectic in the Socratic method. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and Danny, that's exactly where I was going to go, so thank you for doing that. I would just add that in book one of Aristotle's Rhetoric, you know, he he uses the image of the tragic dancers, right, at a Dionysian festival and says that if dialectic is the strophe, then the then rhetoric is the antistrophe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're they're always interconnected. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with Danny. I mean, I think that an essay on its own is decidedly an heuristic act, but I also encourage my students never to imagine it in isolation. Oh, yeah, and that makes sense, and that, that fits right in with Kreider. Mm-hmm. And then also, I mean, you know, the whole revision process, I mean, this is actually why I teach 
platonic dialogues in freshman comp because I point to the process of the assertion by Socrates as interlocutor and then the negation by Socrates, then the assertion prime and then the you know negation prime and that process of tossing it back and forth as a model for real revision. And I use that, you know, so that my students get away from this idea that revision means, you know, putting in a comma here and changing the spelling there. (laughs) That it's actually, you know, clearing out bad ideas so that you can get towards ideas that might be good. You know, the other place I see it is is in the classroom, not so much in in writing, but um, being a dialectic teacher, arguing both sides of the issue so that you kind of force students to make up their own mind about it, but to be fair to both sides. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess, I guess that's, that's where I see the distinction being more help. I mean, we've all had, we've all had teachers who just got up at the front of the classroom and told you what to think. <laughs> um, and, and, and we've all had teachers who are, who, who, who present both sides and kind of walk you through the wilderness. And I, I you know, I, I don't think it's controversial to say most of us prefer the latter. And that, that's right, obviously a more right. dialectic than your heuristic side or heuristic mm-hmm. style. Right. And then, I mean, you know, and just in case any of our uh, Emmanuel College Christian humanists are listening, and I know a couple of them do, uh, you know, this was, you know, what came up in conversation after our most recent Socrates Cafe is that it became an heuristic exchange uh, where one side was going to win and the other was going to lose and we lost sight of the question at hand. And, you know... So I, I, you know, I for one think that this is a very handy distinction, especially in the 21st century, not in spite of, you know, prevailing intellectual and political climates, but precisely because of prevailing intellectual and political climates. That that so. ancient that ancient Greek quality of friendship is is helpful here as well. I mean, if 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 you see your discussion and our own um, Socratic society, mm-hmm. our our. Uh, our our student president is very adamant that what we're having is not debate. There's no winners. This is this is a discussion we're having because we're all we're all trying to head for the same direction, right? We all want to discover truth. We want to figure out how to comport ourselves in the world, and this is something we do together, not something we do alone and then fight about it. Oh, that's good. That's good. And it's worth mm. noting, friendship for Aristotle is itself an arete. Indeed. Yes. And uh, going back to something you said earlier, Michael, about Plato, what the ideas presented in this uh, dialogue seem in conflict with ideas presented in other dialogues. And and one thing I talk about with my class with revision is that there's no essay that's ever done, right? If you were to revisit something that's you would consider perfect and it got a 100 on a test or on a, on a you know a grade, uh, if you were to revisit it from another time in your life, you would bring a new perspective to that and you would rewrite parts of it. And, and so mm-hmm. um, you're sort of in dialogue with yourself even when you're writing. And so uh, like I, I look back to things that I was very happy with even a few months ago and there are moments in it that I would I would change to re- to reflect a a, a a a insight or some update to my own thinking and and so um I how, think that how, how yeah. many people do you know who enjoy rereading their dissertations uh, <laughs> <laughs> nobody enjoys this process I, that's not that's not required um but no no I, I was just I was just saying that 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 is that that's a demonstration of how no no yeah. essays ever finished here's this yes. thing you've spent a year at least of your life on I don't know anyone who actually took a year uh I know one 
I did a year and a half. I did pretty good. Cool. Oh, dang. Yeah, let's let's so. kill him. Yeah. <laughs> but but here's, the, here's this thing you've spent more time on than any, any project heretofore, right? And, and yeah. still, it, it seems hopelessly incomplete, hopelessly naive, weak, you know? Because, mm-hmm. as you say, time marches on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you grow, right? You learn things from the process of having written that, right? And you incorporate sure. that later on. So, yeah. And I've got Metallica in my head now. <laughs> By <laughs> the way, you, Michael, <laughs> it, it could be that my dissertation only took a year and a half because it's not very good. So I don't know. I'll leave that up to other people. So, so. Who's well, Danny, very good, though? <laughs> I, I don't. I, yeah, I'm. You know, as my director told me, there's two kinds of dissertations: the brilliant dissertation and the done dissertation. <laughs> yes. And her, I chose and, the latter. Well, yeah, I mean, her. she says, my goal is always to get you to the latter sort. I, uh, I always heard that you begin by wanting to write the greatest dissertation anybody's ever written, and you end by wanting to write the worst dissertation that ever passed. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, Danny, the most famous passage in this dialogue is the extended conversation that Socrates has with Meno and with Meno's slave boy. Uh, in which Socrates walks the young man through a series of mathematical transformations simply by asking questions and awaiting the boy's responses. Uh, what's the point of that exchange, and how does it connect with the dialogue's central concern with the nature of arete? Well, um, I, we've hit on it a little bit already, I think. Um, and that is a, an extended, like, uh, if you've got the document that Nathan had put up on on the on the website, uh, it's it's a good chunk of the entire dialogue is this these short question and answers about geometry with uh, with this slave boy and and the whole point that Socrates is trying to make is that there is not required some sort of um, formal process of handing information to somebody um, in this case in the Socratic context for for money um, but. Uh, in order to uh, teach them things. They know, uh, people know, uh, people are, uh, have an immortal soul and, and they know by at their birth uh, the world um, as it exists. And so the, the point of this exchange is to show, to demonstrate to Mino that his slave boy, who he's known his whole life, uh, and he knows he has never been taught anything, has a, a very sophisticated uh, knowledge of geometry, some kind of high mathematical concept here. Um, and just by at, taking him through step by step, asking him questions and letting him um, come up against that which he knows and that which he doesn't know, um, he's able to sort of recall this information um, from the, the ether, apparently. And so, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think I must have stolen that from Raising Arizona. I think I must have internalized that from Nick Cage's character in that story. But, um, um, and so it's central to what we're talking about here because it, it, this becomes something that gets at uh, a universal uh, trait that people have. So it's part of the whole sort of democratic idea um, that Socrates is uh, sort of putting forth in this dialogue that um, all, all people are born with this kind of uh, immortal soul. And, and uh, this is a, uh, uh, the, the task of, of, educating that person is getting them to discover the kind of a divine part um, of what they, um, of their being. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Michael, I mean, I, I, when we were doing pre-show before we started recording, you said that the math here escapes you, but I'm not all that interested in the math, frankly. Uh, I'm more interested in 
this idea of the pre-existence of the soul, which of course we've talked about in other uh, podcast episodes with other texts. But one of the curious things, and this is for both of you guys, really, I just brought Michael in so I could get both of you in here. Um, one of the things about people who advocate for quote unquote Socratic teaching, which can mean a dozen different things, uh, but is that almost none of them would say that, you know, this Socratic teaching works with modern college students because of the pre-existence of their platonic soul. Right. Although, you know, I had a, I had a teacher, my, my English teacher in high school, who is probably the reason I'm an English professor. Uh, he once told me that his job was to get students to recognize that they knew and understood much more than they thought they did, which is kind of Socratic, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that for this dialogue, it's explicitly connected with the preexistence of the soul, right? Right, which I don't think he would have affirmed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things that, I mean, this is my uh, pedagogy as well, right? You know, I, I try as seldom as possible to give my students answers. I try to get them to speak the answers themselves, right? Um, again, I mean, uh, uh, how do you square that circle, guys? <laughs> uh, can you rephrase the question? Yeah, sure. I mean, since you <laughs> how know, do you circle I'm... that square, guys? <laughs> yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> well, since you know, and and again, I might be wrong on this, but I'm going to start out with the assumption that not, none of the three of us uh, professes a platonic pre-existence of the immortal soul. Mm. Uh, and yet my hunch is that all three of us, uh, in certain educational contexts will go about our teaching in this question asking rather than lecture performing style. Um, one thing I kind of explicitly say, I, I just kind of go to my experience in the classroom to answer this. Uh, mm -hmm. one thing I explicitly say to my students is that, I know that you bring an experience of the world with you to class, okay? Yeah. And, and you are a, a functioning human being with, with ideas and thoughts. And what we, my goal in this class is to get you to bring that upon your sort of own um, quest for education. And it isn't a, a consumer product that I'm sort of bestowing on you for, for some cash, right? And so this is um, uh, uh, kind of a... a a way of talking around that idea, uh, perhaps for me, but, um, mm -hmm. I, I sort of, uh, skip over the metaphysical element of that. <laughs> but, um, but I do, even at a Christian college, I mean, I, it is kind of a weird thing to, uh, I, I honestly, I, I haven't thought about it because I don't know how it fits in with sort of Christian orthodoxy, this idea that, okay. uh, uh, this uh, idea that the soul comes with, uh, with knowledge as well. Like I, I, I don't know what the, uh, what the fathers have taught us about this. Augustine, so, uh, Augustine affirms a, a sort of innateism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, he, he affirms that the soul, the soul has a knowledge of God, at least when, when mm -hmm. it is created, not, not from hovering around the ether in a previous life, but you know, just because this is this is how we're created. Uh -huh. I mean, I, wouldn't you say most Christians would have affirmed innateism until probably the 18th century? Oh, I don't know. I mean, some, what would some you form say? of innateism. I, I would, oh, I would goodness. think until empiricism begins to rule the roost, uh, uh -huh. innateism would be a given. But okay. maybe I'm wrong. No, I've I've never even asked that question, Michael. So I, I don't I don't have a ready answer for it. I <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, I guess the the further question would be, what sorts of innate ideas would they have affirmed? I I don't I don't know how many people would affirm that we have an innate understanding of geometry. Right, right. 
Oh, yeah, and, and and again, this is something I really don't have an answer to. It it just struck me as I was reading this because I I haven't read the Mano for probably ten years, uh, that, you know, a lot of us, uh, and and certainly our own college, Danny, you know, encourages us to do this Socratic teaching, right? Yes. Uh, but I mean, there is no mention really of the. Uh, uh, you know, I'll use Michael's phrase. I mean, of the metaphysical uh, assumptions that. Plato makes here. Now, I mean, I I think that I could probably give a sort of Wittgensteinian account for why Socratic teaching works, uh, but I do wonder, you know, it, well, no, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that, I mean, that kind of pedagogy does seem to flow equally well from a Wittgenstein philosophy of language as it does from a Platonic doctrine of the preexistence of the soul. So it's one of those things that it's bizarre, you know, I mean, Wittgenstein would be the last person, I would think, to assert with any confidence that there is this innate knowledge of geometry. Uh, and yet, you know, the implications of his linguistic philosophy probably point one towards this question-asking pedagogy just as much as Plato's does. Yeah. I question whether Socrates is style of questioning really leads anybody to truth anyway. I mean, even in the dialogues, how many of them actually end with any kind of positive agreement on whatever the, the quality they're talking about is? I mean, even even here in the Mino, there's a section where Mino says, uh, you're like the torpedo fish. Everybody everybody who gets near you gets <laughs> numb you yeah, know, because uh -huh. they're so confused. And, and Socrates says, well, I'll accept that as long as you admit that the torpedo fish is itself numb. So, I mean, it's <laughs> it's one thing when he's questioning the slave boy, but he doesn't seem to come to any kind of fast conclusions in most of the dialogues that we that we have. Right. And, but, and how many of your classes end with you coming to fast conclusions? Well, I mean, but to give a, a Pontius Pilate question and a Martin Heidegger answer... Uh, if you were to ask me what is truth, a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and well, no, I would say that you know it, it is the process, right? It's not a body of assertions, but it is the process of disclosing the complexity that's in inherent in reality. So, so the truth they come to is that numbness. No, I, I would say that the truth they come to is the possibility that there might be questions they haven't learned how to ask yet. Okay. And I don't think that's the same as numbness. I think that if I push too hard, as I as I have before, and as I'm always in the danger of doing because I'm not a very good teacher yet, uh, I can push them to that numbness and turn them into Alan Bloom-style relativists, right? Uh -huh. And by Alan Bloom-style, and I, I don't mean like Alan Bloom, but like the kinds that Alan Bloom complains about in the beginning of the closing of the American mind. <laughs> but I think that when I do... When I teach skillfully, I think that I can open up possibilities for students that they didn't know were possible before. And I don't think that that, you know, comes by necessarily, you know, dumping content into an empty container. But I do think it comes with actually exploring the contours of the language that they already bring with them to my class. I mean, that makes sense. If if we're defining truth as recognizing that the world is broader than we thought, well, yeah, yeah, and and again, I, I'm but I'm, I don't think that's how Plato would define truth. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I think that you know, for Plato, that would be the process of approaching truth, but it wouldn't itself be truth. 
I don't know though. I you know, and again, this is I, again where the this very brief dialogue, and I hope our readers have had a chance to download it and read it. Uh, you know, just opens up all sorts of fascinating questions for us, which is why I wanted to do a platonic dialogue because the questions are so fun. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to leave that sitting. I mean, unless you guys want to have a last word on it for now. No, all right. I'm, I'm not sure there's a last word to be had. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's always a last word for now. There's always the last page of the dialogue, right? What's that? Uh, what's that Brian McLaren book? The last word and the word after that. Was that McLaren or was that N.T. Wright? Oh, maybe it's uh, for some reason I was thinking, the, the title sounded McLaren-y. Maybe it, maybe it is N.T. Wright. I haven't read it. No, I, I think Wright wrote a book about the theology of biblical authority with a very similar title, if not that one. Well, maybe it's Wright then. You, you would know better than I would. Yeah, and I should know with more certitude, but I'll have to go look that up at some point. Well, Michael, when Antaeus joins the conversation with Mino, uh, the subject matter shifts from the two, pardon me, uh, to the presence or absence of Arete teachers in Athens. Now, Socrates goes through a whole list of possibilities, the Sophists, Themistocles, Pericles, Thucydides, several others, and the results at best are mixed. Some of them seem to be able to teach their own children ar- excellence, Arete, some of them can't. Uh, what's the purpose of this catalog of Athenian worthies and their sometimes unworthy sons? And where does the conversation go when Socrates is examined each in turn? And we've already tipped our hat to this already, so uh, do you think this is in sort of fundamental tension with the mathematical dialogue that we discussed not long ago? Oh man, so many questions there. I know, I know. Um, First of all, Antaeus is, I believe, one of Socrates' accusers in the Apology. He is indeed. So uh, this is this is Plato showing Socrates pissing off one of the people who later has him arrested <laughs> and killed. This uh, is Socrates ter- overturning the temples in the t- temple court. Right, right. <laughs> so I mean, we, we we have here. This is a in that sense a prequel to the Apology. Although I guess all the uh, all the dialogues are, except mm-hmm. uh, except the one the one that takes place at the death. Uh, what right, Crito and Phaedo. And Phaedo. There you go. I guess it's two, not one. Sorry. So, so what you get here is is Socrates asks uh, Antaeus, who should who should our friend Mino go to if he wants to learn virtue? Should he go to the Sophists, who of course are out there claiming to teach among other things virtue? And and Antaeus says, no way, man. He'd be better off going to any of the aristocrats in Athens before going there. And and Socrates then begins to question him in a very unpleasant way given his own social rank and Antaeus's social rank about about the ability of these great aristocrats to teach virtue to their children and he talks about how they he they may be able to teach them horse training they may be able to pass on their um their particular trade but that there's no guarantee that the virtue of a father passes to his son and and so it it ends up looking at the end of this weird little discussion and I always imagine Antaeus just kind of walking by and Socrates grabbing him by the arm because <laughs> Antaeus <laughs> doesn't seem too happy to be involved in this. But it ends up looking at the end of this at the end of this um, conversation as though virtue is something some men just kind of accidentally have, and they have no idea that they maybe even no idea that they have it, but certainly no idea how they got it and no idea how to teach it to their children. That virtue is something. 
that to answer Amino's question at the beginning can't be taught that in fact comes to us by other means. Mm-hmm. So that that's what I get out of that conversation. That that other than him just honking off uh Antaeus, this is <laughs> this is this is an assertion on some level that having virtue is no guarantee of being able to pass virtue on. That virtue right, is incommunicable right. in some sense. So Danny, am I misreading this? I mean, is this in fundamental tension at the very least, I would say contradiction with the dialogue about geometry. Um, <laughs> well, I think after that, after that dialogue on geometry, Socrates sort of comes to, like, he almost changes his mind, right? And mm-hmm, he's saying, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, look, we could teach everybody. No, we can't teach anything. And so there's this sort of, uh, yeah, it is fundamentally, uh, like, unreconciled, I think. And I don't have an answer to why. I feel like uh, Michael's uh, uh, summary of this whole thing uh, perfectly captures my own sort of confusion, which may be <laughs> Socrates' point. And maybe he's torpedoed me in, in, a, in, a, a, <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a useful way. So, Yeah, we've uh, all become numb. Yeah. So, so, so I'm not alone here in having a Jack Derrida meltdown. No, you're not, Jack Gilmore. <laughs> no, no, but no, I mean, it, is there a platonic dialogue that goes anywhere close to where you think it's going to go? Even the apology, even the easiest, most straightforward platonic dialogue, you read that and you are conditioned to think what's going to happen is Socrates' defense of himself is going to get him off. Mm-hmm. Not not a single one ends where you want it to end. <laughs> I mean, the Phaedrus, for crying out loud, ends in a discussion of writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plato would so, fail freshman comp, is what I'm saying. So <laughs> he, he would, he would, he would not pass the coherence standard. There you go. There you go. <laughs> These paragraphs do not flow one into the other. Oh gosh, that's speaking of my least favorite word in freshman comp. I've banned it. <laughs> so. We should, we should have a conversation about that because I use that word. <laughs> oh goodness, it it gives me a rash, but. Yeah, opinion I mean, it, was your least favorite word in freshman comp. It's up there. It's up there. I have several least favorite words. <laughs> but yeah, and you know, I, I, and and again, I'm prodding you too, just because that's my habit. But uh, it is a gloriously fun little ending because uh, he really does. He comes down on the last page of the dialogue on a conclusion that's entirely inconsistent with that long, you know, geometric dialogue in the middle of the text so uh once again i mean uh, this is why uh among other things you know plato is just loads and loads of fun to teach to undergrads right uh first and foremost because they're i would say and, and michael and danny you can catch me up short here if i'm going crazy here uh i would say that in a lot of dialogues there's no such thing as the platonic or the Socratic position. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, again, I, I'm just going to make a quick nod to, you know, the trend in popular, uh, popular Christian books to dismiss the platonic view or heaven help us, the Hellenistic view. Or the Greco-Roman as, view. Or the Greco-Roman view. <laughs> I wasn't going to go to that book in particular, Michael. Well, but I'm you just, just saying expand it so. even further, right? Platonic, yeah. Hellenistic, Greco-Roman, ancient. Right. When in Western. this, you know, 
single, very brief platonic dialogue, we can't even find a single coherent pos- position. <laughs> I it, it just makes me laugh. I, se- I just he look- seems to mostly like to stir things up. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I honestly, and again, I, I, I go, you know, I, I came to Heidegger through Plato. So really I see in Heidegger's discussion of the nature of truth late in being in time, uh, really a, an inheritance of that Socratic tendency, right? Uh, the truth is not a body of propositions, but it is a process. I tell my freshman comp students this all the time, that it is a process of truthing. And, you know, I mean, that, that is what they are after when they write academic essays is they want to continue this human enterprise of truthing about their subject matter. So, and I guess inevitably this is going to become a conversation about freshman comp. I just realized that I've brought it into just about every question here. Well, this, <laughs> but, is, this, is, this is a dialogue about teaching. Well, it's about a dialogue about teaching, right? I mean, it makes sense yeah, that, yeah. We, we, that freshman comp would come in because that's where you get them. Sure, sure. By the time, by the time, by the time you got them in senior year, you're not teaching them anymore. You're just kind of standing aside and letting them teach themselves and each other. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Good word. Good word. Uh, well, I want to take it around the horn, but I want to do it a little bit slower than we usually do, so that we can actually discuss a little bit. Uh, I tell my own students that the value of reading Plato uh, for the Christian, uh, which is what we are here with the Christian Humanist Podcast is not to look for good answers, because dear heavens, there's all kinds of squirrely answers in Plato, uh, but to look for good questions. So Danny, starting with you, talk about one good question that this dialogue raises for the Christian, and if you're so bold, point us towards a possible and faithful answer. Well, first of all, after this last little bit of conversation i can't help but picture socrates as groucho marx like i, I that's sort of this guy just <laughs> well, that surprise me danny <laughs> yeah well yeah everybody yeah this is how I, this I see myself does, does he, and, does and he so, also look like lionel trilling <laughs> no no he has the mustache and, and he's pulling on people's beards and and yeah no this is uh uh and i've always actually saw what groucho does in his early movies specifically is, is a very kind of ethical uh kind of chaos of, of shaking uh shaking off badly held orthodoxies and, and just replacing them with a mess um, that you can reassemble later. Um, and the movies never try to reassemble the mess, which is what's great about them. So um, uh, in the way that Socrates doesn't either. But uh, to get back to uh, the question at hand, the notion or the, the question uh, as to whether virtue can be taught is, a, I think, a ridiculously tricky one for Christians, right? I mean, this is sort of the whole thing kind of hinges on we can train our children up well. And so um, I would like to pose a question about, and Nathan, you sort of uh, pointed towards it a bit earlier. Uh, what is the point of a Christian education? Like what is the, Ooh. what are the ends of a Christian education? Um, and if I were to um, uh, venture a guess, um, to, and the answer is you're asking me to do, I believe you asked me to do that, right? Um, I and so, <laughs> um, one thing I try to get across to my students is I'm fighting against this sort of. Uh, I find myself constantly, even in a Christian context, fighting against this consumerist notion of education. Like I've, I've sort of, I'm paying for knowledge that you are giving me, right? And so I, I try to um, get away from that idea and undermine it at every kind of opportunity. And, and what I like to 
replace it with is that your education as a student is an ethical um, uh, decision and it's an ethical act on your part. And so uh, you have to sort of uh, seek those uh, answers yourself. And, and me as a teacher, uh, while if Socrates thinks that you cannot teach anybody virtue, right? I, I sort of, I, that's consistent with the way I teach um, because what I can do is help someone seek it on their own. Um, and so this is to me what's different about the, what the, at least the possibility of a Christian college um, presents itself, uh, presents for us is, uh, is that we can sort of get past this uh, consumerist idea of education and replace it with something that's kind of self-motivated and ethically driven within uh, a nurturing sort of community. Um, and so that would, that would be sort of my takeaway from this, I guess. Sounds good. Danny Anderson bringing the synthesis to the <laughs> contradiction inherent in the Mino. <laughs> um, Michael, what, what question would you want to pose and what answer would you venture what does knowledge look like because at the end of this dialogue plato makes a very strange distinction between knowledge and true opinion mm -hmm. and he says the difference is both of them are fine guides to action but true opinion is like where you happen to think something but it's not grounded in this foreknowledge that that he's been trying to prove with this geometrical argument with the uh, slave boy so true opinion mm -hmm. is where it's not eternally grounded, but it just happens to be right. Mm -hmm. If we don't believe, and none of us seem to, in the pre-existence of the soul, if we don't believe that we know things because we remember them from our voyage into the ether between lives, how do we know anything? What, what distinction can we make between knowledge and true opinion? And I would not dare to offer an answer to that although I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm opening I'm open to listening to what you have to say. So I guess my question's epistemological. What counts as knowledge? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm not going to try to take a stab <laughs> at that one either. I Well, and I mean it's funny because uh Michael, what you just described, I mean, is something like what a lot of Christian college freshmen and honestly a lot of UGA students as well. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you know, when you get evangelical students in a state university, they're still evangelical students. Uh, but they sort of bring this to the table that, you know, the big danger of college is that it's going to turn them into relativists. So, you know, they sort of swing the pendulum to the other side and say, well, whatever answers I bring with me as an 18-year-old, my job is to defend those like a good hockey goalie. And, you know, if the professor scores any goals, then I'm some, I've somehow failed. Right, and and certainly I don't want I don't want to encourage that. Right, right. No, 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 no. I wasn't accusing you okay. of that, but I mean it, it's interesting that you know those seem to be the two live options for our students when they come in. Right. I mean, so this, you know, what I would call a a Heideggerian Platonic option that you know actually disclosing the complexity is itself a a process of truthing is something that you know they don't necessarily bring with them. Yeah, and I guess if I if I had to offer an answer, and I, mm -hmm. I said I wasn't going to, but I'm going to. But I've goaded you into it. You have. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure you can ever know something as knowledge, but as you get older, as you read more, as you think more, simultaneously, 
you begin to think you know less than you used to. There's that Bob Dylan song, I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. That that as you as you age, as you begin to see the complexity of the world, you begin to recognize, as Socrates says, how little you know, right? And at the same time, you become more sure about certain things. Mm-hmm. So so the the field of what counts as knowledge becomes smaller perhaps mm-hmm. but the towers you build on that field to mix my metaphors become taller <laughs> no that's fair enough that's fair enough and it, it sounds very ecclesiastical i mean it sounds like um like the the kind of questions that the the teacher is asking in that that old testament book and so mm-hmm. um you know yeah and, and you know again i it's one of those things where do i think that certain things i thought when i was 18 are not true yeah, absolutely. And what are those things? Well, most of them have to do with, you know, this is a very simple matter. This is a very simple matter. Right. This is a very simple matter. <laughs> you and, know, and also uh, with with, uh, with who you are. To get back to our authenticity episode, that that's the uh, that's uh-oh. the that's the thing that that I think, like your your self knowledge changes so much over over time, and and you begin to become almost a mystery to yourself. Sure. Or I do. Sure. Well, since I wrote up the show notes, uh, my question is actually going to come from a conversation we've already had. And I mean, that really is the question of what is a rete? Uh, because one of the things that I'm always trying to piece together, not only in the college context, but in other life contexts as well, is uh, first of all, I, I take sort of as an axiom uh, that none of us has a singular narrative in life. Uh, that my my own story as a U.S. citizen and my own story as a believer in Jesus Christ, my story as a parent of two children, my story as a professor of English, all of these things are to some extent overlapping, but also in other ways uh, incommensurable with each other. And that means that I have to make choices uh, to sacrifice the goods of some of those stories in order to pursue the goods of other stories. Uh, There might be people out there who can harmonize all of the expectations that everyone in the world has of them. I ain't one of those dudes. Uh, So one of the questions that that persists with me is precisely the question that Socrates poses at the beginning of this dialogue. Is there a common thread that we can call arete simpliciter? In other words, not arete as citizen, arete as teacher, arete as believer, but simply arete. Uh, and it's one that I, you know, right now my answer is, if it's there, I can't see it yet. <laughs> you know, I, I'm more inclined to go with what Alistair McIntyre would call a tragic view of life, in which being a good teacher is going to sometimes mean being a bad citizen, or being a good parent is going to mean... Uh, you know, being a bad churchman. Uh, and, you know, I, I have sort of come to accept that at this point in my life, those are simply the choices I'm going to have to make. I'm going to have to live with the consequences. And so let it be written, so let it be done. I, I do wonder still, because I still have that, that wild pl- platonic streak in me, uh, whether in fact there does lie some horizon out there that I can point to and say, at some point I'll reach a unified notion of virtue what do you guys think about that i like it i mean i'm with you though i'm i i i, I incline toward that mcintyre mcintyrean 
uh-huh. tragic <laughs> view of life. Um, the, the, these these roles are kind of incommensurable, and everything is sacrifice, and mm-hmm. that's why we're all perpetually dissatisfied. Yeah, I had a hunch you'd go Kierkegaard on that. I <laughs> I usually do. As 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 we can count on right. Danny to go trilling, I, I uh, you can count right, on me to go right. Kierkegaard. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's one of the many differences between you and me, Michael, is that you know you're you're, you're sort of like Goethe's Faust. You've become satisfied with the perpetual struggle. Uh, I still try to reach towards some kind of harmony. <laughs> I'm a fa- I'm, I'm a fatalist and an existentialist. Go figure. <laughs> well, that's what that's what Faust ends up at the end of that great tragedy. So, do with that what you will. <laughs> are you on Are you on Twitter, Michael? Uh, no, no, I'm afraid there, not. There, there's a great Twitter account called uh, Kim Kierkegaard Adashian. Um, <laughs> no. Should go look at that. It's, it's very funny. Actually, so. Yeah, there, there's another one called Kanye Howard West, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, which is hilarious as well. But we're not talking about Twitter here. We're talking about Plato. Uh, you know, who Michael Franzen. Who would have hated Michael Twitter? Franzen would not approve. <laughs> Michael Franzen. Oh, did I just Jonathan switch? Franzen? Jonathan Franzen, son of a gun. I... We'll call him Jack Franzen. Jack. Franzen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd love that. Oh, he, he does not seem like the type to like a shortened uh, nickname, does he? No. <laughs> oh man. Or, or anything else. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of like him for that reason. He's, he's, our, he's our modern Socrates, right? <laughs> Except he's not interested in dialogue. <laughs> no, he's really not. Well, folks, now that we have completely wandered off, <laughs> I think I'll go ahead and bring this conversation to a close. Uh, I want to thank Michael Farmer and Danny Anderson for uh, wading into this platonic water with me. Uh, Michael... What are we? No, yeah, you're queuing next week. Yeah, what are we queuing up next week? We are beginning our fall triptych, and it will be for the. uh, the, uh, Was this your idea, Nathan? You know, I I, I believe so because this is the 30th anniversary of the phenomenon at hand, which is Star Wars. So we will be doing three weeks on the original Star Wars trilogies, episode four through six. I never saw episode. I saw episode one, but never two and three. So we won't be talking about those except in passing. So we're going to start next week with episode four, A New Hope. And then who's doing Empire? Uh, That'll be me. So Danny's first ever curated episode will be on The Empire Strikes Back. And then, um, and, and then, then I'll we'll... wrap up with Return of the Jedi, which was released 30 years ago in 1983. So I have not, um, I have not seen any of these movies in at least 15 years. So uh, <laughs> we we borrowed the DVDs and they're sitting on our coffee table waiting to be watched. So um, you, you all have that to look forward to or dread, depending on how you think about it. Yeah, and see, I uh, I have an eight-year-old son, so we have the original trilogy on VHS and DVD. I guess uh, I guess I should ask whether Han shot first, huh? On the VHS version, he did. Oh, that's so bad. Oh, gosh. <laughs> While that's... you are waiting, folks, for the galaxy far, far away to come to your digital audio device, uh, you can find us on christianhumanist.org on the net. You can find us on Facebook. You can go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, write us glowing things. Uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And, of course, as always, we encourage you to listen to our uh, the other podcast in the Christian Humanist Network, as Michael sometimes calls it, uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, which just released a new episode with David Grubbs interviewing Fred Sanders, and also the Christian Feminist Podcast, 
uh, which features some fascinating discussions of academic and pop culture sorts of things. All good shows. Come listen to them uh, and write us. We love hearing from you. So in the meantime, in behalf of Michael Farmer, in behalf of Danny Anderson, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. Sins.